A reading from Titus 2.11 to 3.8. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to always be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, been hated and hating one another. But this is when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to, and, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who are trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Well, it's good to be with you and welcome along to this meeting uh, of the Christian Union. The topic for today is what it's like to be a Christian. Now, one of the, the sort of paradoxes, realities of life is that it's very hard to know what it's like to be anything without trying it. Uh, I don't know what it's like to be an astronaut. I've never tried it. I can imagine, I, you know, I've watched movies, I've, I've watched videos of people being blasted off into space and experiencing all those G-forces, but I don't actually know what it's like to float with no gravity. Um, I do know what it's like to be an engineer, but unfortunately I didn't find it out till after I've invested four years at university to train to be an engineer. Then I got to do it, and that was when I first experienced what it's like to be an engineer. I guess that's why now, often at high school, they emphasise this work experience. Uh, go and work as an accountant for a while. Uh, go and, uh, and try being a garbage collector, whatever it might be, because once you get inside and see what it's like, you might decide you do like it or you don't like it. Because from the outside, we do get some impressions about what things are like, but it's pretty limited and often distorted. Now, if you're not a Christian... I guess you're looking from the outside at Christianity and you've got impressions about it. And I presume they're sort of limited and potentially a bit distorted. That's just what life is like from the outside. And I presume you're asking two things about Christianity. I hope you are anyway. Firstly, is it true? Is it real? And that is a critical question. The Christians believe something about this world, about us, that is quite distinct. We believe this world is created by a creator, a, 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 a powerful being who made us. But a creator who also became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ and died and rose again. And that's quite a different sort of belief to atheism or Islam or Buddhism. Now, it's possible that Christianity is all a fantasy world. Or it's possible that atheism is a fantasy world, just made up. And I don't want you to become a Christian if it's not true, if it is just a fantasy world. Same time, if it is true, I don't want you to live in other fantasy worlds, like atheism. I remember 
but sorry, the second question is, uh, is it true as the first? The second is, what's it like to be a Christian? Remember going with a group of friends, uh, we were hiking in a mountain region in New South Wales, just beautiful country. Um, and towards the end of the day, we came across this uh, pool of water, crystal clear water in the middle of the mountains. And we're all sort of pretty hot and tired and sweaty. And some of the guys just stripped down and jumped in straight away. I, I was a bit reluctant. <laughs> and they said to me, come on, Tim, it's great. That's it, lovely. Just jump in. And I thought, no, I don't want to. I'm sure it's cold. I'm sure it's freezing. Uh, I, I think I'll just stay as I am. And they kept saying, come on, Tim, jump in. And eventually they wore me down. And I did strip down and I jumped in. And they were right. It was bracing, but it was just so refreshing. Well, what I want to do today is try and describe what it's like to be in the water as a Christian. And Michelle's going to help us because she's going to tell a bit uh, about her story uh, and what it's like for her, share some of her experience. But I want to do it by looking at this passage from the Bible in Titus that describes some of what it is to be a Christian. It's not the whole picture, but I think it does give a terrific insight. We see from verse, the first couple of sentences there, verse 11 and 12, that Christianity is about God changing people. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to not live lives of just unfettered anger and bitterness and deceit and lying and lust and using people. Instead, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. That is, God is about changing people, transforming me from one sort of person to another. But how does he do it? That, that's the question. You can see a little bit more of what God is wanting us to be in verse 14, the end of that first paragraph. He's purifying for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good. It's a great expression, I reckon, because it describes something you can imagine. People who are eager to do good, not reluctant, not forced to do it, but they want to do it. If you met people like that, they're sort of strange. They want to help you out. They don't do it because there's something in it for them. They they do it because they want to. They want to pick up the rubbish, the litter we've left on the oak lawn because they actually like it to be a nice place for others. Eager to do good. You don't meet them very often, but they're terrific sort of people. And this is about how God changes people to be like that, to be eager to do good. Just before we explore how God does it, it's worth asking how we do it. And there's a a famous picture from antiquity of the way... Trying to describe how we change people. It's a picture of a donkey and a man on the donkey trying to get the donkey to move forward. And do you know how he does it in the end? Well, He's got two tools he can use. One is called a stick to bash the donkey. Come on, pain, pain, to get it to move forward. The other is a carrot dangling in front of the nose of the donkey because donkeys like carrots. And so if you dangle a carrot in front, the donkey might start to move. Not because it wants to move, but because it wants the carrot. And that's a picture, I think, of how we try to change people because we do want people to behave differently. Our parents tried to get us to behave differently. Uh, They did it often, and what did they use to do it? I presume they used carrots and sticks, rewards and punishments. 
you're grounded for the next day if you step out of line. Maybe if you do things really well, if you study hard and get good, good results, then they'll reward you with, I don't know, a holiday, buying you a laptop, whatever it might have been. And so your parents modified got you to become a good student through rewards and punishment. Our government uses it. How do they get us to pay taxes? Well, they threaten us with fines and imprisonment if we don't pay our taxes. How do they get us to drive safely? Well, there's fines and there's demerit points and you might lose your licence and all of us think that would be a terrible thing and so we tend to drive at least not to get too many points. Um, And so they modify our behaviour. The university does it. How do they get you to study? Well, they offer you a degree. They dangle a carrot in front of you. If you'll study hard for three years, do the assignments, work for the exams and pass them, we'll give you a degree. And the degree has some value. It's got some cachet. You can get a job with it, maybe. And so they entice you to study. Corporations use it. They employ you or they offer you a salary and bonuses if you work hard and promotions if you do really well to try and entice you to really work for the corporation. And we use them on each other, I think, just in our friendships. A special treat there, a cold shoulder uh, somewhere else um, to try and get get people to do what I want. Now, what do we call that? Well, I think if you're honest, it's simply called coercion, isn't it? Or manipulation. We're trying to get people to do what they don't want to do, and so we give them reasons for doing it. We might call it character formation or discipline of children, and it's often justified because that's the only tools we've got. But does it actually work? That's a question we'll come back to in a minute. And I think most people see God, if there is a God, as the expert in using carrots and sticks. Of course, he's got the ultimate stick, hasn't he? He's got that thing called hell to threaten, to punish you, to send you to the place you don't want to go. And he's got the biggest carrot you can imagine. He's got heaven, eternal life. And so most people, I think, imagine that God, if he exists, dumps a truckload of fairly arbitrary rules on humans and then he threatens us with the stick and he entices us with the carrot to get us to be good, to control our behaviour, to make us keep his rules and maybe to get some of us to heaven. And so when we think about and contemplate doing something wrong, we sort of imagine God up there maybe looking down on us saying, don't you dare or else the stick will come. If If you view God that way, I guess you may comply out of fear, you may rebel out of stubbornness, but you'll certainly feel a bit of pressure, you'll feel manipulated. And I suspect in the long run you'll resent God and keep your distance if you can. But my question at the moment is, do carrots and sticks actually work? Well, if you're just talking about changing behaviour, yes. They get you to study, don't they? The university, by offering you a degree and threatening you with expulsion if you fail, it gets you to study. Uh, the government, by its uh, laws and impositions, its, its sticks to do with taxes, gets people to pay taxes. But does that actually change people to be keen to do good? So, for example, does the uni offering you a degree uh, create students who are keen to learn? Not that I've noticed. <laughs> I hang around uni. You, you, your students, does it work? Does it, 
does it create this desire in you to learn? I don't think so. Just to do what's necessary to get the marks that you need to get your degree. Does the government's uh, rules about taxes and what happens if you don't pay taxes create people who love paying taxes? Well, if it does, I've yet to meet them. I don't know anybody who loves paying taxes. I mean, imagine they have, Imagine the government didn't have to have any laws about taxes. That, I mean, the laws, the statutes in Australia as taxes are that thick to try and stop all the loopholes. Imagine that the people wanted to pay taxes. You wouldn't need any laws, would you? People would be ringing up the tax office saying, I'd love to pay another $5,000 tax. We, we, how, how do I pay it? Sort of unthinkable, isn't it? So carrots and sticks can change behaviour, but I don't think they actually change people. When my son was in primary school, um, I had an experience with him that taught me uh, this lesson the hard way. He came home from school one afternoon with one of his mates um, and I got them something to drink and eat or whatever. They went off into my son's room uh, to play. And my son had a pretty extensive Lego collection. He started to pull his Lego out and started playing with his Lego. His friend wanted to play with him. And and I overheard my son say, no, it's my Lego, you can't play. And his friend kept saying, come on, please, I I just want to... There's plenty of it here. And Andrew just kept saying, no, I won't let you, it's mine. I thought, I I can't let this go on. So I intervened, I went in. uh, I I said, Andrew, can I just come outside? Can I chat to you for a minute? I went outside and I said to him, Andrew, if you invite people home to play with you after school and you don't let them play with you, how many friends do you think you'll have? Can you recognise the carrot? I was dangling in front of him. You want friends, don't you? He said, no, it's my Lego. So I then said, well, after he goes home, if you don't share your Lego with him, I'll take action. You can hear the stick, can't you? And then I realised what I was doing. So I wanted him to be unselfish. And I gave him two completely selfish reasons to be unselfish. It doesn't change people. It actually just reinforces their selfishness, which is at the heart of evil. It coerces outward conformity, but it doesn't change people's hearts. Well, despite the popular perception about God and the experience even of some people, this passage tells us that's not the way God does it. God doesn't change people by carrots and sticks. You see verse 11, that first sentence, it's the grace of God that teaches people to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It's grace that trains and transforms people. Now, grace is an unusual concept. Um, The word just means pure generosity. Undeserved, Unexpected, because generosity always is unexpected. There's nothing to, to lead up to it to say, oh, it should happen. It's just generosity. So imagine Andrew Forrest walked into this room now. You know, Andrew Forrest, Twiggy Forrest, FMG, iron ore, magnate, billions of dollars. Imagine he walked in and looked around and just, for no reason that you, you could work out, just walked up to you and said, here's a billion dollars, I'd like you to have it. Okay. That would be grace appearing in the chapel on the 30th of August, 2018. That's what grace is. It's that just generosity, surprised, unexpected. And this passage is saying God's grace appeared like that in history. Because Jesus came, and in verse 14, he gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness. 
Jesus gave himself, a, a gift to us, for us, to redeem us. That was grace appearing, the grace of God. In his death, Jesus crucified under the Roman proconsul Pilate in 30 AD. Well, when he was crucified, what this passage is saying is, the stick that God might use on me actually fell on Jesus. He died, he gave himself to liberate us from the condemnation that I deserve and you deserve. He took it on himself. He took my hell, my execution. And it was all of grace. It was just generosity. He did it for me. It was a gift. It goes on in that, the last paragraph in chapter 3, verse 5, to say he saved us not because of any righteous things we'd done. He didn't owe it to us. There was, there was no sort of um, build-up of things that I did that led him to think, ah, oh, Tim deserves it. It was just pure generosity. But if the stick's fallen on Jesus, it means God is no longer standing over me with a big stick saying, don't do it or else. The stick has already gone. Jesus took it. And what about the carrot? What about this offer, the hope of eternal life? Well, that's mentioned in verse 7 in that last paragraph. He talks about having been justified. Christians are people who are justified, put right with God by grace. We become heirs having the hope of eternal life, the sure hope of eternal life. I, I might not experience all of it yet, but it's already mine. My name is on the title deeds. I'm just waiting to enjoy it fully. So God is not dangling heaven, eternal life in front of me, saying, if you do better, if you try harder, I might give it to you. No, he's already given it to me. That's grace. By God's grace, a Christian is someone who's completely forgiven as a gift from God. And because he's forgiven, or she, they have a sure hope of eternal life in the future. Heaven is guaranteed. And this passage says that's how God changes people. It's how he saves people. It's how he changes people. Now, how it works, we're going to explore in a second, but I thought it would be helpful at this point to ask Michelle to just come and share some of her own experience and story of becoming a Christian and what it's like for her to live as a Christian. So, Michelle, some of you know Michelle, some don't. Michelle, just can you tell us uh, what you're studying? Uh, yeah, I'm accounting and business law. Yep, I'm 30 year now. How long have you been a Christian? Uh, just a bit over a year. Okay. Can you share with us your story? Yep. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I grew up in a practicing religious family and religion was um, a big part of my life growing up. It was like my understanding of God from what I've been brought up with was that like firstly to be cared about by God, it was about um, like you had to be good enough, you had to earn it, you had to um, like you had to show that you were devoted enough to God for God to care about you like through prayer, religious rituals and things. Um, and then secondly, it was about um, like asking God what I needed and wanted. Like it was, instead of God taking an active role in that, it was, I guess, my responsibility to be um, like asking God for what I wanted because God, I thought, didn't actually care about me as an individual. And it was sort of about like passing some sort of arbitrary test that sort of said that you were worthy enough because you'd showed your devotion for God to then grant you what you'd asked for. Or it was God would punish you if you weren't pleasing enough to him. So, yeah, like one big event in all this was that when I was 16, my dad died from terminal cancer. And, yeah, through that whole experience, I lost my trust in religion and I became very cynical and sceptical. 
And so, yeah, that's mainly because religion played such, like, a large role in the process. It was all about trying to get my dad healed, and I was, um, like, my family every night for a long time after he was diagnosed, it was sort of, like, we'd sit down and we had, like, prescribed set prayers, we'd say, that were for healing, if you said them, or they were, like, to show devotion to God, and we tried our best to, um, try and put ourselves in the best situation possible to, like, show that we were devoted enough to God, that God could heal my dad, and things like that, um... Yeah, but my dad wasn't healed, and then a few weeks after, I distinctly remember, I just sat down and I said, like, God, if you're real or not, I don't really care, like, you, I don't think you're real, so I'm just going to have, like, a break from religion now for a while. So, yeah, so from there until uni, I sort of went back and forth between, like, different views. Like, I was either convinced that there was a God, but because there were so many different religions and views on who God is, I was like, well, you how do we know which is real, so, yeah, or I'd go to, um, there's most likely not a God, but there could be, but then how are we supposed to know if God's real or not, <coughs> so it all came down to how are you supposed to know and find out, and by the time I was starting uni, I was in the stage where I was believing that there was a God, so I was participating in my family's beliefs, but it was more out of, like, the familiarity of it, and, like, maybe fear that, oh, if God's real, I might as well do this. So, yeah, rather than conviction that it was true. Um, so uh, when I was at uni, I wasn't satisfied, and I thought if there's a way that I can find out, possibly, like, if God is real, then I want to try. So the long story short is I got involved at the Christian Union, and I gave them my details at O'Day, but um, I listened to the talks online that were available on their website because I didn't want to get cornered, and I was very sceptical and distrustful. And so... But later, I reluctantly got involved in a small group when I was invited by somebody from there. And, yeah, so um, after a semester of that, I thought this is, sounds legitimate. Um, I wanted to know if the Bible held up to my scrutiny. So, yeah, um, I had this sort of, like, burning desire to figure out what the truth was. Um, sort of, I resolved that I was going to read the Bible in a year and, like, read the primary source for myself. So I finished that in January this year, but then halfway through last year, I was convinced that the Bible was true and that the God of the Bible is the true God, so I had to respond to the message of what God said in the Bible I had to do, and so I became a Christian. And so my understanding of God through all this um, completely changed. Um, I learned about God's grace, and I learned about how God created us to be in a relationship with him, that God loved us from the start and knows us completely, and actually cares and loves us and that God is fully aware that we can't reach perfection, that we're broken and that um, we've been corrupted by trying to live um, apart from God, our creator and so our relationship with God has been severed and um, yeah, so God is perfectly loving but also perfectly just and so he has to punish this rebellion against him and punish evil but God is fully aware that we can't do this ourselves so that's why he came to earth as Jesus and died in our place as a substitute. Um, yeah, so therefore he took the punishment we deserve so that we could go free. So from all this, it's our relationship with God has got nothing to do with earning God's favour because God is already for us and he was the one who took the initiative to repair our relationship. And it's like God loved us when we were still against him. Um, so our role is just to choose to turn away from living apart from God and choose to turn back to God, 
to accept this free gift of forgiveness and to um, yeah, turn back to wanting a relationship with him. And it struck me that if we could earn our way to a relationship with God, then Jesus, when he came down to earth, he would have just said, this is what you have to do to please me, um, pull your socks up and I'll see who's obedient. But that's not what he did. Like Instead, he died for us and that wouldn't have been necessary, but Jesus said that the whole point he came to earth was to die for us. Um, that was the whole plan. Um, so now I do things out of love for God rather than trying to win God's favour or out of fear as I already know that God loves me completely, um, that God's love doesn't need to be earned and I have a desire to know God and live for God, the number one priority in my life. Um, it took me some time after I became a Christian to be able to let go of this image of God I had from what my family had told me. Um, I, it was scary at times because I thought maybe I'd made a mistake or that I'd missed something and it seemed too good to be true like relating to God like this where you're actually loved by God and you can trust God and know that God is looking out for your best interests. Um, yeah, like prayer, for instance, is about the relationship rather than it being about um, like a safety net against bad things happening. Um, it seemed like, seems like wishful thinking because it's so liberating and too good and just way too easy. But then I remind myself that what I believe growing up didn't have the support and like... It was just what I'd been told, and when I tried to like research it and find out why it was true, I just couldn't find the answers, and that the Bible held up to my scrutiny, and that I'd concluded that it was reliable, and therefore the evidence pointed towards the God of the Bible, and this was who the God of the Bible says he is, and this is how God tells us to relate to him. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. I'm sure Michelle would be happy to share a bit more of that um, at the end. Thank you. So I hope you've seen just from what Michelle uh, explained that she discovered God was a God of grace, not a God who used carrots and sticks standing over us. And so I now want to explore how that actually works in practice. How does God's kindness to us, God's graciousness, generosity, actually change us? Because... It's sort of counterintuitive. Um, Let me try and illustrate. Imagine you were given the power to go to Casuarina Prison, which is sort of the high, um, uh, where all the criminals are are kept, and you you, you had the power to go and open all the cells and open the gate of the prison and say to all the prisoners, you're free to go, and no matter what you do, we won't arrest you again. Now, that would be grace, wouldn't it? Would you expect that to change them out of their criminal mindset. Or tonight, would you lock your house and lock your car? Because you'd be worried that their criminality would actually just erupt. Now it's been liberated. I'd, I'd probably expect that to happen, actually. So how does God's grace change us from people who do ugly stuff to people who are eager to do good? Well, let me give you a few ways it works. The first is... Under grace, we're free to do good simply because it's good, not for other reasons. See, if you're doing good because you're under some regime of carrots and sticks, rewards and punishments, why are you doing good? Why are you helping people? Why are you being kind? Because it's good for you. That's why. Because there's a carrot you want. There's a stick you want to avoid. It's actually just self-interest. You're helping others to get something, a reward for yourself. You're not harming people to avoid punishment for yourself. 
Actually, you're just using other people, aren't you? For yourself and your benefit, which is not genuine goodness. I mean, we know that motives are critical to something that we think of as genuinely good. If my motives are just selfish, then that that flaws even the good things I do. It, It makes them corrupt. It's the contradiction at the heart of all religions that atheists often point out. All religions say, we want you to do good, but why are you doing good? Because you win your reward of eternal life or nirvana or uh, coming back as something better than you've been this time in karma, whatever it might be. You're doing it for your good. You're giving uh, to charity. You're being kind to people for yourself, which isn't really good. But that's not true about the true and living God and his grace. The under grace if the carrot has been given to me, if the stick has been taken away, I'm liberated from looking out for my own selfish benefit. (laughs) There's no benefit to me. I can now do good, not because I have to, not because I'm coerced to do it, not because there's something in it for me, but simply because it's good. It's good for them. I want to do it. I'm not coerced to do it. It creates people eager to do good. So grace is necessary to change people into people eager to do good, but it's not sufficient. And the casuarina prison prisoners, the criminals who've been let free, I presume just saying you're free and you won't be rearrested doesn't actually change them to be eager to do good. It's necessary, but not sufficient. And in this passage we see more. So in that last paragraph there, pick it up in verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we'd done, But because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God actually gives us a new power to live differently. He graciously pours his spirit out on us, the spirit of God himself, to take residence within us in our own hearts, to renew us, to give us a new nature and new desires and new hatreds and new power to be different. And the Holy Spirit works from the inside out. He's not restricted to being outside me, tapping me on the shoulder saying, Tim, don't do that, or coercing me by saying, no, you mustn't do that, or else something bad will happen. But the Spirit works from the inside out, a power to live differently. So I'm not simply released from the carrot and the stick. I'm changed at the core of my being by the power of God. And grace gives me different motivations to do good. Go back to the first paragraph there, the last sentence in it. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his own, eager to do good. There's a reality about being redeemed, rescued out of wickedness. Not just the consequences of my wickedness, the judgment of God I deserve, but a whole life of wickedness. He describes that in verse 3, the beginning of that last paragraph. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That sounds a pretty extreme description of life in the world, doesn't it? But it's sort of true, isn't it? Maybe not every second, but do you remember the, the bullying that happened in the playground at school? I don't know which side of the bullying you're on, but it happens in every play, playground, doesn't it? the kids that get picked on, the people who pick on them, the hatred and being hated, the the envy and the deception. 
<laughs> Parliament House. We've seen it in the last week, haven't we? The sort of backstabbing and deception, the party politics, to, all fueled by selfish ambition, it would seem. Workplace bullying has always been there. They've just done more research about it recently. Uh, Professor Gary Martin, who's at Monash University, I think it is in Melbourne, has done a whole lot of research into workplace bullying in Australia. He concluded that at more than one in two workers in Australia experience significant uh, workplace bullying in their time as workers. Despite all the laws we've got about it, despite all the unions and everything else, it's just happening. He calls it the silent epidemic. And what, what this is saying is God, by his son Jesus, rescues us from that life of wickedness. And if you've been rescued out of that, that hating and being hated, the deception, the envy, the, uh, uh, the passions, then why would you want to return to it? Remember the story about the, the soccer team that was caught in the cave in Thailand recently? Um, and it was just so wonderful to finally see them rescued. Uh, the international effort that was put in to get, get them out of the, uh, the predicament they were in, the danger to their lives, the uh, claustrophobia of being locked up in this cave in the darkness, the hunger, the, the body odour that just would have that succumbed to, I guess, in the long run. But they were rescued out of there. Enormous effort. Now, imagine they get out to the entrance of the cave. All this effort to get them there, they finally get to the entrance, out of the cave, out of that disastrous place, are they going to go back into the cave and the labyrinth and get lost again? Well, it's not wrong to do it. It's not immoral to do it. It's just stupid, isn't it? <laughs> They're not going to do it. They've got out of there. And so Christians are people who've been rescued out of wickedness. We, we won't go back to it, will we? Once we see it for what it is, once we've experienced life outside it, why on earth go back? The Bible has this image for it of people doing it. It says it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Have you ever seen a dog do that? It eats something that makes it nauseous and sick and it vomits up. And some dogs will then start to eat what they vomited up. I hope you haven't just eaten lunch. <laughs> um, I mean, if you see a dog doing that, what do you do? Well, you might try and persuade it not to, but you probably need to kick it or something. Because it's just, it's just irrational, is it? The thing that made you sick to go back and want to eat it again. Well, that's what it's like for a Christian to go back to a life of evil because Jesus has rescued. It's not that we're not allowed to do it. It's not that we'll be condemned if we do it. It just doesn't make sense. Michelle said, I now do things out of love for God, not out of fear of God. And so part of the experience of being a Christian is this natural gratitude that comes because of God's generosity. Imagine if uh, Andrew Forrest did walk in and put a billion dollars in your lap. How would you feel towards Andrew Forrest? Naturally, almost inevitably, you'd have some affection for him, wouldn't you? That he'd treat me like this, that he'd just give me that, that amount of money. Can you imagine, in that situation, walking out, finding his car and putting a big scratch down the side of his car? his Royals or Royce or whatever it is he travels around in. It, it just doesn't compute, does it? And gratitude is actually at the core of the difference that God makes by his grace, transforming us into people eager to do good. See, God's way of changing people is grace all the way. It's not coercion. 
is not guilt tripping, it's grace. God is not standing over me saying, Tim, do right or else. There's no or else. The or else has already fallen on Jesus. He's taken it already. God isn't reminding me at every turn, Tim, you failed. Try harder, do better, twisting the guilt till I pull my socks up. Of course I fail. I fail regularly. Stupid to hide it. But God's response is, Christ died for that and that and that and that. You see, there's no coercion. There's no manipulation. There's no pressure. Now, at this point, I probably need to address the elephant in the room that some of you might be thinking. That what Christians say is, become a Christian or you go to hell. Isn't that the Christian message? Isn't that coercion? Well, let me try and turn turn around a little bit how you might think about that. Because there is some truth in it, but I don't think it's coercion. So if Andrew Forrest had put that billion dollars in your lap and, and you sort of look at it a bit sceptically and push it away, imagine he then says to you, listen, please take it. If you don't, you'll stay in poverty. Is that coercion? I don't think so. It's reality. It's generosity. But it's hardly coercion. And so when God says to us, accept my gift of salvation, accept what my son has done for you, welcome it, or you'll get what you deserve, I don't think it's coercion, it's reality. It's kindness. So I hope you've started to get a bit of a feel for what it's like to actually be a Christian. And and what I've described, I think, is almost too good to be true. So as a Christian, there's nothing I have to do to win God's favour, to keep God's favour. God doesn't force me, he doesn't coerce me to do anything. So I don't have to pray. If I don't pray today, God doesn't disqualify me. He doesn't punish me by not answering my prayers for the next month just to get even. And God has set me free from all that coercive life. I'm free to do what I want to do. Now that sounds sort of dangerous, doesn't it? I'm, I'm not sure I'm game to say to a child, you're just free to do whatever you want to do. Because <laughs> I suspect what they want to do is not particularly helpful for them or anybody else. But as somebody who's experienced God's grace, when I stop and think about what I want to do, I actually do want to pray. I do want to bring my little request to the creator of the universe, knowing that he hears me. I do want to be honest. I do want to love people. I mean, it's not so simple as that. It's not all I want to do, but I actually do want to do it. I'm not very good at loving people. But God's generosity to me, his love for me, keeps motivating me to do it and his spirit keeps changing me from the inside so I want to love others and that freedom I think is a real surprise because to become a Christian is to bow the knee of my life to Jesus to put myself under his rule and say to him Jesus you say from now on what is good and what is evil I don't do it myself I live under you But I discover then that Jesus is this king who loves me, who rules with my best interests at heart. This is a king who died for me. He took the stick I deserve. He gives me eternal life as a gift. And therefore he sets us free to serve him wholeheartedly, which is pretty sort of easy to do when you know he's that trustworthy. See, I have his favour. 
I can't lose it. I can't win it. That's the amazing thing about God's grace. You start to get a feel for what it's like to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I hope that some of your suspicions that Christianity is about God guilting us into behaving, a killjoy determined to ruin your life, simply aren't true. That is not what the true and living God is like. I hope you start to see that it's actually the total opposite. Guilt is real. Evil is real, yes. But God's response is not to use it against me, but to offer forgiveness and welcome if we're willing to come. So what's it like to be a Christian? I actually think it's terrific. It's to be genuinely loved. It's to have genuine freedom. I find myself always asking, I get up in the morning, what do I have to do today? But as a Christian, there are no have-tos. I'm actually free to say, what do I want to do today under God? God isn't standing over me saying, you have to do this or else. And I discover that God is really changing me. I have a growing eagerness to do good, to be what God wants me to be. So if you're not a Christian, can I ask you, what is stopping you becoming a Christian? It could be that you just don't know enough. You're not confident that God is real and it's true. Can I invite you then to, to explore more? Because if it's true, it really is a good truth, a good reality. One way you could do that is to come along to a, a course we're going to run over the next few weeks called Christianity Explored. You can just come along, listen, ask questions if you want to, no pressure, nothing, just explains Christianity in a really simple, straightforward way. And there's a way of just ticking a box on this thing, if you'd like to do that. What might be stopping you? Is it that you're determined to keep God out of your life, no matter what? Can I ask why? Why would you do that? There seems something both dumb and, frankly, wrong about treating God like that. Or is it that you're afraid to take the plunge? You're like me on that, that, that hike, standing on the edge of the pool, thinking, well, I won't, I, I'm not quite sure, I don't know what it would be like if, if, if I jumped in. What can I say? I'm in the pool, and it's terrific. It's wonderful. It's, it, it's almost too good to be true. I, occasionally I pinch myself in the morning thinking, is this real? Is God actually this gracious? And having experienced the grace of God, I don't want to live any other way. So I'm saying to you, if that's the only thing that's stopping you, jump in. That's great. I'm convinced it's real. I've experienced this goodness. How do you do that? Well, it's not like stripping down and jumping into a pool. It's You've got to talk to God. And on the back of your uh, handout, you'll find a very simple prayer to God. The sort of thing you might say if you wanted to jump in, if you wanted to become a Christian. Let you just read it for 15 seconds or so. See what it says. Now, if this isn't what you want to say, please don't say it. But if this is what you want to say to God, then I'll, I'll say it aloud. Please just repeat it in your own heart to God. God, I'm sorry for pushing you out of my life. I've done evil and been evil. Please forgive me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. Please help me to be eager to do the good you love. Amen. Very simple, isn't it? Can I say, if you've prayed that prayer, God's heard it. 
He welcomes you, he forgives you. And you've started a new life. And we'd love to help you sort of take the baby steps living that new life. If you just pull out this slip at this point, can I ask you to fill out this feedback thing if anybody hasn't got one yet? Thanks, Liz. Um, uh, If you enjoyed the talk uh, or didn't enjoy the talk, please just circle whatever appropriate. Uh, Please be honest with us. There's uh, somewhere where you can tick to say, I'm interested in joining Christian Explored. If you tick that, we'll contact you and tell you when it's running and invite you to come. But you will be in control of what you do. No one's going to coerce you because God is not like that. Uh, If you'd like to find out more about CU, or if you prayed that with me for the first time, could you tick that and just give us a way of contacting you so that we can help you um, uh, learn to live this new life with us.